Um, the message of Jonah is so much more and so much richer than that. So we're going to dive in to the remaining two chapters of Jonah that follow. Uh, the, um, the message of Jonah is so much more and so much richer than that. So we're, that's where we'll begin today. But let me first go back to the very beginning of the book and show you how it starts. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai saying, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city and call out against it for their evil has come up. Um, the message of Jonah is so much more and so much richer than that. So we're, um, the message of Jonah is so much more and so much richer than that. So we're with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. And that's how the story starts that leads to the storm, that leads to the fish, that leads to the vomiting of Jonah onto the shore. That, that, and his prayer that pre, uh, precedes that rescue is found in chapter 2. Look at how chapter 3 starts. It's like a do-over. After Jonah has been rescued by the fish, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. It's, it's like the book just restarts. And Jonah, Jonah gets what we used to call when we were kids, a do-over. He gets another chance to serve God and be useful to him. Um, another way to think about it, I, I love the description that John Ortberg uses. He says, a few years ago, I went to play golf with some friends, something I do very rarely and very badly, he says. On the first hole, I lined up to hit the ball, which looks so easy when it's done on TV. He says, after all, the ball is not even moving. He says, I hit a shank which defied belief. It went off at a 90-degree angle. He says, it was astounding. No one had ever seen a golf ball go off at that trajectory before, and we weren't sure up to that point that it was physically possible. He says, I wish so badly I could have that one back again. He says, it hit the slate roof of a nearby townhome and sounded like it may have done some damage. He says, I started to try to track down the ball so I could hit my next shot when the people I was playing with said an amazing thing. Don't bother. Let it go. They told me to take something that is called a mulligan. He says, you don't have to play the unplayable lie, they said. You don't even have to count it. We won't write it down. It won't appear on the scorecard. It will be as if it never happened, they said. Irrelevant to my ultimate score. I was given a clean slate, a fresh beginning. I could start over as if for the first time. A mulligan is a kind of grace note in an otherwise unforgiving game. So what God does to Jonah in golfing terms, is extend to him a mulligan. It resets. The book restarts in chapter 3. And Jonah has a new opportunity to obey, honor, and serve God rightly. Now, this is what's remarkable about this. Think about this. If you're at dinner with your kids, those of you who have kids, and, and they spill their milk, they're excited to talk, they spill their milk, but it's totally an accident. It's, it's not a big deal. You just, you just kind of clean it up right? And you give them a new glass of milk. But if they take the glass of milk and they throw it into your face, then usually different parenting practices come into play, right? If it's volitional and rebellious and disrespectful. And Noah, or not Noah, rather Jonah has just thrown the glass of milk into God's face. It's like if God told him to go from here to New York, he headed for L.A., total rebellion against what God was asking him to do. And what Jonah experiences here in the reset, the do-over of chapter 3, is amazing grace. And, and I want you to see, this is what God is like. He gives grace that's greater than your rebellion. Okay? It's greater than your past. And it restores you to usefulness to him. You know, it's contrary to that voice that says in your mind, well, God could never use you. Don't you remember when you did X or you said Y or you thought Z? God could never use you. 
That's not God's voice. His voice sounds different than that. Here's the true voice of God from the prophet Joel. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He relents concerning disaster. Um, see, in chapter 1 and 2, God's amazing and greater grace comes to Jonah um, and convinces him to cry out to God and commit to obey God. After God rescues him by that fish, he repents and cries out to God. Listen to the last couple of verses of his prayer from chapter 2. Jonah says, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah embraces God's grace and God extends to him another chance to serve and honor God. And so this morning, that grace is for you. Maybe it's, maybe it's not the first time. Maybe it's the second time. Maybe it's the tenth time. Maybe it's the thousandth time you've needed that grace. But there's a grace that's sufficient for you, calling you to turn from your foolish and empty ways and embrace God and His grace again. Grace to follow Christ, even if you've been running the other way. Okay? There's sufficient grace for you. God is, in that sense, the God of a second chance. Even for Jonah, even for me, and even for you. Okay? Amazing grace. Grace for Jonah, and there's in chapter 3 a second story of amazing grace, and that involves the Ninevites, the people who live in Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell to you. So God, a second time, is compelling his prophet to go to this city. And you have a sense that God just cannot get the people of Nineveh off of his heart. He will not let go of them. And so he is after Jonah so that Jonah will go again. They matter to God, just like the Ninevites do in our day. People who are far, far from God. Okay. There's a, in, in missions circles, there's a little uh, acronym. It's called the UPG, an unreached people group. People who have virtually no access to the good news about Christ, right? And they've added a new term called the UUPGs, the unengaged, unreached people groups. That is, not only do they not have access, there's no missionary, no organization targeting them with a plan to reach them. Some people call them the uber-unreached people groups, right? There's, they have no way to hear, humanly speaking. Um, and those people number, best we can tell, about a quarter of a billion people on earth live in that state, right? 250 million people, which is, which is not a whole lot off of the population of the United States. We're 300 plus million, right? 325 million. So imagine that if you went on a road trip from the East Coast to the West Coast and you did not encounter one church, not one, not one believer, not one. Okay. And God is calling some of you here to change that. To be the one who will go and live amongst those people and be as Christ to them. To speak of them and to show them for the first time in their culture who Jesus is. And this, this is exactly what Jonah is called to do. It's what he is doing this time. With the second chance, Jonah obeys. Okay, look, Verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. 
according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's five short words in Jonah's language that comprise the heart of his message, right? Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Um, he goes one day's journey into this city. It says it's a three days journey all the way across, and I wonder, why did he stop at one? Was that as all that he could bear to go into this city? They were, they were enemies, the worst kind of enemies of Israel. Some have said asking Jonah to go to Nineveh would be like asking a Jew in World War II to go to the Nazis. Um, they were those kind of enemies. Um, but regardless of why he stopped, one day's journey was all it was needed. Um, five short words, and the people of Nineveh believed God. And they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And this, this, not the great fish, as amazing as it is, this is the great miracle of the book of Jonah. An entire city repents and believes in God. You know, um, it's been almost 15 years ago, I think, that I traveled to Indonesia with... Noah Joyner and his hair and Daniel Creswell uh, to do a missions conference. And while we were there, we, uh, we were on an island called Batam. And we left Batam and we traveled just a short distance away um, to Tenjong Pinang, which is a city about 125,000 people. And uh, it was reputed, this area was reputed to be um, the prostitution capital of Indonesia. And so imagine if we had walked in that city and called them to repentance and the whole city had repented. Um, the women began to wear modest clothing and the men began to stay home at night and the Singaporean businessmen were turned away and all of them, all of them from the greatest to the least. Imagine if the entire population repented based on this simple message, yet 40 days and Batam will be overthrown. Well, that is what happens in Nineveh. It's a pagan city renowned for its wickedness. And they believe, in spite of Jonah's reluctance, He's going obediently, but as we'll see, he's going reluctantly. Um, one of the, a, a genuine um, scholar of the book of Jonah, his name is Terence Fretheim, he says, Jonah's message was a rather truncated one. There is no reason to think that anything else he had to say was of a different sort than what's reported in verse 4. Jonah cried out, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He says it was a message entirely of doom with no reasons given. Jonah thus makes his message as vague and as blunt and as offensive as he possibly can. It is suggested that he delivered a message that would make it almost impossible for the people to regard positively, and yet they do so in a manner quite beyond the realm of human calculation. He said, it might be noted that this message was delivered by a man who had just been saved by God from death in the sea. Jonah had just experienced the unmerited grace and goodness of God in his own life. And now he turns right around and makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience God's deliverance. No mention of specific sins to which they might repent. No glimmer of hope. Just 40 days and wham! A graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of great grace. He says, and yet no preacher has ever met with such success. Little effort, poor skills, a terrible sermon, and total success. <laughs> and he's a foreign prophet, quite unknown to the Ninevites. God had prepared a way for his message 
so that in spite of the missionary, it found its way into the hearts of the Ninevites. God, he says, can write straight with crooked lines. And I think, I think this is what God wanted Jonah to learn. I think it's what he wants us to learn, that he longs for the nations to know him. He longs for them to know him and to have the joy of worshiping him and bringing honor and glory to his name in their language, in their land, in their culture. It's what, it's what Revelation shows us when they sing a new song to the Lamb, to Jesus, and say, Worthy are you to take the scroll, open its seals, for you are slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So God is calling us, just like he called Jonah, to take the gospel to places where the name of Christ has never been named to every UUPG tribe, tongue, and nation out there. To places like Syria and Iraq and Sudan where they have a reputation for persecuting followers of Jesus. Who will go to North Korea and to Turkey and to Vietnam and to Somalia? Cities that are waiting for the message of grace that has been proven to overthrow cities and overturn hearts. Would you go? What about your children? Will you encourage and pray and prepare your children to go? There's grace, amazing grace for Jonah and amazing grace for Nineveh and really amazing grace for their king. Um, the Assyrian kings were... Um, not nice people. Okay? The history does not speak well of them, nor in their own words. Uh, one of their kings, his name was Ashurbanipal. He writes of a captured leader. He says, I pierced his chin with my keen dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope. I put a dog chain upon him and made him occupy a kennel. He said, I boasted, he boasted to his officials that he hung Egyptian corpses on stakes and stripped off their skins and covered the city walls with them. They were terrible men and terribly arrogant. Another one of their kings, um, Esarhaddon, said, I am powerful. I am all powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal among all kings. So this is the kind of guy that we find in Nineveh, one of the great Assyrian kings. And we read that the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes, which are the outward visible demonstrations of humility and repentance. I think of that verse in Romans, it says it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. God's grace, God's grace is sufficient for even the mighty. Okay? It is needed by the mighty. It's needed by your bosses and your supervisors and your CEOs, by your teachers and your professors and your principals by your coaches and the star quarterbacks and the famous celebrities, they all need grace that leads them to repentance. All of them. Who will tell them? Who will go to those who are above them and speak to them of the mercy of God? Proverbs says that the king's heart's a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, and God has turned the heart of this king of Nineveh towards faith and repentance. But before we move on and see what happens as a result of that, I just want to ask you, is there someone over you in your life, like a king? Someone who has authority over you, someone maybe really important that you know, whom you subconsciously thought 
really doesn't need grace or really wouldn't respond to it. But maybe God has you there to speak to them of their need of Christ. Even you. Even them. Well, these people, when they come to faith, they wield great influence in God's hands. We see what happens next with the king. And he issues a proclamation and published it through, throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Even the cows and sheep have to repent, right? The king is so urgent and so believing in his decree. Um, in this decree, we see a man desperate for God, a turning from evil, submission to God's will. These are evidences of a changed heart, a heart that's been overthrown by the hope of grace. And when God saw what they did, verse 10, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Um, amazing grace for Jonah and for Nineveh and for their king. Amazing grace. And that same amazing grace, it's for you. God is extending to you today through the hearing of this story grace that's greater than your past, grace that's even greater than your sin. And He's giving you a chance today to say yes to Christ. I love the way John Ortberg tells this story. He says, I used to have a bedtime ritual when my children were small. He'd say to them, I don't love you this much. And they'd say, I don't love you this much. I don't even love you this much. I love you this much, right? He said, but occasionally they would test it. He said, we were washing the car when one of my children got into the trunk, put all its contents on the ground, and sprayed them thoroughly. Books, blankets, my tennis racket, and a new dress were all hosed and sudsed up beyond recognition. My daughter, who was about four at the time, could see from my face that she had sinned, and the wages of sin is death. <laughs> he, said, he said, she looked up with her big brown eyes and threw her arms out to the side as far as she could, and she said, I love you this much. <laughs> he says, how could I punish that? He said, all right, honey, let's just put this stuff in the garage. He said, I could forgive her, but of course, someone else has got to pay for the damage. She has incurred debt for books and clothes and racket, and if I cleaned out her whole piggy bank, it wouldn't make a dent in what she owes. He says, forgiving is never just a matter of words. There's a cost attached. Someone has to pay the debt. And he said, this is what happened at the cross. The Bible says, in some way that we will never fully understand, an unpayable debt was paid, and we can start over. We must. He says, the first question is not how much do you love God. The first question is how much does God love you? And the scriptures teach us that he loves you very, very much. So much so that while you were still in your Nineveh stage, he, he sent people after people after people to talk to you, to encourage you, to love you with the love of Christ. And more than that, he has sent his son to die and be your sin bearer. To be your Savior. There's grace. There's grace for you too. Don't miss it. In the book of Jonah, there's grace for you. Greater than your past. It's greater than your sin. And it comes through Christ. Well, well back in our story, you would think that the repentance of an entire city would be a prophet's dream. That he would be doing the victory dance like celebrating wildly, you, you'd think. But in chapter 4, we see that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's interesting now, when Jonah sees things like God being gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, in Jonah's mind now those are bad things. See, Jonah, having just received life-saving grace, does not want that grace, that same grace, to flow to the Ninevites. He witnesses this amazing display of God's beautiful and powerful mercy on a city, and he's ticked off by it. Jonah is now at odds with God. He can't delight in God. He would rather die than align himself with God's character and purposes. And this is where grace blockage takes a heart. Where you receive God's mercy and love, but you are unwilling to pass it on to someone else. And your heart actually becomes embittered by it. Jonah has received grace. He will not pass it on. He wants grace for me but not grace for them. And underneath this may lie some kind of a sense of entitlement or merit or due. After all, he's an Israelite, God's chosen people. He's a prophet, for God's sakes. It makes sense for God to forgive him. But the Ninevites, that's a whole nother story. And if not careful, we can feel that way. We can think, hey, we're decent people. We're middle-class American church-going folk. It makes sense to be God, for God to be merciful to us, doesn't it? Right? Grace for good people. That could be our motto. Grace for people who deserve it. But grace doesn't work that way. Grace is just for the undeserving. You can never merit it, ever. It's never merited, not even by Israelite prophets or American Christians. Okay. And the Lord said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? You, the rebellious prophet who ran 180 degrees away from my will, who endangered sailors and whole cities by your disobedience? You, you whose life I miraculously spared in the midst of your disobedience by pure grace. Do you have any right to be angry at my display of grace towards the Ninevites? Do you have any right to dam up grace, Noah, at the edge of your life and your people? Clearly, God is pressing Jonah to acknowledge the grace that he has received and to pass it on. And those things are inseparably linked. If you try to separate them and dam up grace at the edge of your property or at the edge of your family and say, grace for me, but not for them. If you don't acknowledge grace and pass it on, you will, you will end up directly opposing the God who gives grace to the undeserving, like you and me. Grace cannot be dammed up. It makes us miserable people. Because we directly oppose the character and purposes of God. Unless you can wish grace, pray for grace, and even bear grace to your enemies, then you don't understand the grace that's been given you by a holy, holy, holy God. There's a helpful story that's told about an Amish family. Their name was the Royers. And uh, they were farmers. And one night... A group of drunken high school boys went to the Royer farm after a football game, began breaking watermelons. The produce provided the mainstay of the Royer's annual income. And while the boys were yelling and cussing in the field, the light of a glowing lantern began flickering in an upstairs bedroom of the farmhouse. And from the field, the boys could see the light being carried down the stairs and onto the front porch. And as the light approached them through the darkness, the boys prepared for a fight. And instead... Mr. Royer came to the boys and explained to them that they could have all the melons that they desired, but that the melons they were breaking were not his best ones. And so he offered to lead them to the best field and give them as many as they wanted. The boys were embarrassed, 
respectfully apologize before leaving, and, but Mr. Royer invited them in for a glass of lemonade. He said they needed it. <laughs> but the boys declined, trying to soak in their vivid lesson on Christian character and on grace. See, you can dam up grace at the edge of your property line, or you can let it flow even onto your enemies. It's your choice. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah is waiting to see if he convinced God to destroy the city. He's still hoping that God will destroy the city. He's hoping that he straightened God out on this one. And now God, with unbelievable patience with his stubborn prophet, provides Jonah with an object lesson. And so the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah is exceedingly glad because of a kudzu-like gourd that has grown up over his head. It's the first time Jonah's been happy in the whole book. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so it was faint. And Jonah asked, being the drama queen that Jonah is evidently, that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Um, if you read the book of Jonah, by the way, let me encourage you. Uh, if you'll go to BibleGateway.com and click on the audio Bibles and listen to the reading of the message Bible of Jonah, it's fabulous. You can, do it, you can listen to the whole book in 10 minutes. So this afternoon, when you're having your siesta, listen, listen, to, the, go listen to the book of Jonah and, and watch for the sovereign appointments of God throughout the book. The wind in chapter 1, the lot the sailors cast, the fish was appointed, the plant was appointed, the worm was appointed, and again, the wind is appointed. Um, God's sovereignty throughout the book of Jonah wields His mercy. And what God has done here is to construct a situation where Jonah has experienced delight for something, concern for something, even compassion for something he cared about, and then God allowed him to experience the loss of it. And God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. <laughs> and God's relentless here, right? He's asking him the same, you recognize the question? Same question, different object. Now, instead of asking him if he's, if he's right to be angry about the people, now he says, are you angry, is your right to be angry about your plant? And Jonah's response is the same both times. He thinks he's justified in his anger. The difference is Jonah was wanting to die back in verse 4 because God's mercy had been extended to the Ninevites. And here he's wanting to die because God's mercy wasn't extended to the plant. And so now God kind of, bottom lines his prophet and he says Jonah you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow you came into being in a night and perished in a night should I not pity Nineveh that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle Jonah is concerned about this one kudzu like plant that he did not tend that's here today and gone tomorrow. But God is saying, I think, I think he's saying to Jonah, Jonah, you're right about your concern for the plant. You're right to have compassion for the plant. But I am more right to have compassion for the city and her people. The 120,000 who cannot tell their left from their right, that could be 120,000 children who don't know left from right yet. Or it could be a reference to the fact that the city, the population of the city as a whole is ignorant of God's ways. They don't know God yet. 
They don't know left from right spiritually, which would reflect God's concern for the unreached. But God is saying to Jonah, either way, Jonah, you're concerned about a plant. You had no investment in it. It wasn't even yours. It only lived a day. Jonah, can you understand now why I'm concerned about a great city full of more than 120,000 people that I created, that I love, who will live not for one day but for eternity? See, God is intent that Jonah share his compassion for those far from God, even for enemies. And that's how the book ends. Will he? And that's how the book ends for us. Will you? You know, Ray Ortland has written about this and he's described God's sovereignty in Jonah. He hurls a great wind upon the sea. The lot selected points to Jonah. The Lord appointed a great fish. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. The Lord God appointed a plant. God appointed a worm. God appointed a scorching east wind. And he says, the Lord has more ways of confronting us than we have of evading him. And who knows, God might even this morning have appointed a sermon to help you turn and return and receive mercy and grace that's greater than your sin so that you can obey him and what he is calling you to do. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Father, thank you for this this gentle story wrapped up often for us in a children's book and yet help us see that the great miracle is not the fish stunning as that is it's a city a whole dark evil pagan city and they all turn to you and you lavished mercy on them God help us to believe that it might that it might still be that way that the cities and the places around the world where the gospel is not welcomed and Christians suffer greatly, that you might one day bring grace to that city, possibly through someone at North Wake. Help us sort out, God, what our part is in that. And help us embrace grace that's greater than our past and greater than our sin. Through Christ, through Jesus, his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day. Christ, we praise you. We worship you for bringing that grace to us. Help us delight in it and walk obediently to you. We pray this in your matchless name. Amen. Would you stand with me now and let's worship Christ and the Father. We've a story to tell to the nations that shall turn their hearts to the right. It's a story of truth, a story of mercy, a story of peace and of light. Peace and light. Oh, We've a message to give to the nations that the Lord who reigneth above, he hath sent us his Son to save us and show us that God he is love. God is love. Oh, oh. A song to be sung to the nations that shall lift their hearts to the Lord. A song that shall conquer evil 
and shatter the spear and the sword. Spear and sword, oh, 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 Weave a savior to show to the nations who the path of sorrow has trod. And that all of the world's great peoples might come to the truth of God. Truth of God, oh, oh, oh. the kingdom of love and light oh the darkness shall turn to dawning and the dawning to new day bright and christ's great kingdom shall come on the earth it's the kingdom of love and light love and shall turn to dawning and the dawning to noonday bright and Christ's great kingdom shall come on the earth it's the kingdom of love and light oh oh God, we look forward to the day when your kingdom, when you reign on this earth, and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gather around your throne singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb. God, make us a people who are so captivated by the love shown to us, the grace given to us, that we would go forth and speak words of hope, we would give that good news to the world that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you'd be seated for a moment. I have uh, several things that I just need to draw your attention to real quickly, and then we, we want to have prayer at the close of the service for something very special. Um, men's retreat registration is in the lobby, guys, on your way out. I encourage you to... Uh, sign up for the retreat. Outstanding roster of teachers. Ben Merkel, Stu Bowman, Jake Mason are teaching us this year. Those are gifted teachers um, who are really going to challenge us and encourage us. And it's a, it's a great time. So I, I hope that I'll get to see you there. You can sign up in the lobby today. This Friday, we have a women's night of worship um, at 7 o'clock in this room, ladies. So mark that on your calendars. And uh, there is still an opportunity for a few seats to sign up for part of the Prayer 2016 uh, rally. It's several thousand Christians that gather for prayer, a night of prayer and worship in downtown Raleigh of all denominations and all races. And uh, we're partnering with Friendship Chapel Baptist Church, an historically black church across the street from us. And it's going to be a great opportunity for us to begin to build relationships with them. You can sign up in the lobby under the map uh, out there as well. And... Um, Let's see, we have a gathering for prayer next Sunday, not this Sunday. Due to the holiday, we've moved it to September 11th. Uh, next Sunday night will be our corporate prayer. And the last thing we have is so special that Daniel Creswell is coming out of his sabbatical <laughs> to lead us in this time. So, Daniel, why don't you come on up, brother? If it's possible to have 
more Creswellian joy. I do have it right now. And uh, it's for several, several reasons. Um, we've a message to give to the nations. And we, Christ Church, get to proclaim that message as we leave this place today. And God has given us shepherds that we call elders or pastors who bear the weight of caring for the church by devoting themselves primarily to two things, prayer and the teaching and the preaching of the word. And God, through the Apostle Paul uh, in Titus chapter 1, gives a list of qualifications of what a pastor or elder should look like. He says, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The qualifications that I just read that describe elders or pastors are what all men in the church should be in pursuit of. And it has been a great joy for myself and the other elders of our church to watch Corey Williams strive to live out these qualifications for the past seven years. Corey joined our church seven years ago as a single seminary student. And he leaves us today as a husband to Sonny, a dad to Oliver and Emerson. Uh, he's been a small group leader. He's a counselor in our Hope Counseling uh, Ministry. Uh, he was a pastoral intern under Jake Mason's leadership. Um, but most significant to me is that for most of the seven years that while he was here, he was involved in leading worship right beside me. Well, I should say almost right beside me. Because the very first day that he led worship here at North Wake, that next week I had several church members come and say that it did not help my perceived stature <laughs> by him standing next to me. Thank you, church, for that, by the way. So I moved him down, and I put Sarah Beth next to me. I don't think I can win that. Corey's being sent out by us today to the little town of Ironton, Missouri, where he will be joining the congregation of the First Baptist Church there as their pastor of worship, associate pastor of worship and discipleship. And considering the fact that Corey has served us in our worship ministry, in leading in small groups, which is a very pastoral role at the heart of it, counseling in our Hope Counseling Ministry, uh, we can see how God has uniquely gifted and suited Corey for this role that he is calling him to serve in. So I'd like to ask Corey and Sonny if you guys would come just stand down front here. I'd like to charge you with a charge from the scriptures that Paul gave to Timothy, his young protege. This comes from 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties 
of your ministry. I'd like to um, ask our elders and pastors if you would come. We're going to lay hands, Sonny and, and Corey, if you guys would just kneel right there. I'd also like to ask small group members or if you're friends of Corey and Sonny, uh, if you would like to come down and uh, let's pray for them, commit them and their ministry to the Lord, and look forward to what God's going to do in Ironton, Missouri. Lord, I'm reminded in Romans where you, where you told us through the Apostle Paul again, how will they hear unless someone goes and preaches the word to them? And God, I'm so thankful for the chance uh, Corey has been given over the past several months in my absence, the chance that I get every single Sunday to preach the second sermon through music, to proclaim your word through song, God, to help hide it in our hearts through this gift that you've given us of music, that you've commanded us to sing a new song to you, that in, in Psalm chapter 100, you, you tell the nations to sing this song to you. And so just as Jonah was sent to Nineveh, God, so we send Corey uh, to Ironton, knowing that you love those people just as you love the Ninevites, knowing that you long to see your name and your glory and your renown uh, spread there. So, God, I do pray that you would give Corey and Sonny much grace as they are ambassadors of the word, as they are ambassadors of Christ. Uh, help them to endure hardship. Draw them close to you. And uh, Lord, may you be glorified. May you be savored and delighted in, in by them. And uh, allow their lives to affect all those that they touch. I'm so thankful for my brother. I'm so thankful for your word that sends us all out. We commit him to you. And we pray all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.